Welcome to the Flip the Script podcast, transmission number two. Sunday, September 26, 2010. Nick was flopped on the sofa in the downstairs recreation room, watching the endless football games. Actually, he didn't even know what he was watching. It didn't matter anymore. Around 2 p.m., Nick got up and trugged to the laundry room where piles of clothes were lying on the floor. He found a loose razor blade and slashed his wrist, then closed his eyes and slashed his right wrist. He opened his eyes and watched the blood run down his hands and onto the floor. He felt faint and nauseous, but he didn't think he had cut himself deeply enough to die, at least not quickly. He bled across the basement floor and he looked around for something else to use. He found a heavy-duty power cord, made a noose, and hanged himself. Not even that worked instantly. His neck did not snap. He was suffocating. When his wife came downstairs, he found Nick hanging by the power cord, unconscious and bleeding. She called 911, struggled to cut him down, and feverishly administered CPR. Police cars, a fire truck, and an ambulance arrived at the house by 2.25 p.m. Nicholas Marsh, age 37, a prosecutor who had worked in the elite public integrity section of the criminal division of the U.S. Department of Justice, lay on his basement floor in a pool of blood, a power cord around his neck. He was pronounced dead by the D.C. coroner at 2.30 p.m. He died of asphyxiation. On this podcast today, we're going to be talking about corruption. Now, our Constitution of the United States protects those who are accused of committing crimes. And as it is written, the Constitution actually has more protections for the accused than for anybody else. The cards are actually stacked in the accused' favor. If you've paid attention to anything that's been going on in the news over the last five years, you have seen corruption. Now, I take no pleasure in talking about this. It actually saddens me. However, it is important and we become aware. So today's topic of discussion is going to be on a book entitled Licensed to Lie and is written by Sidney Powell. If you're not familiar with Sidney Powell, she is a former federal prosecutor under nine U.S. attorneys from both political parties over 10 years and three districts. Sidney Powell was lead counsel in 350 criminal appeals for the United States and more than 150 since in private practice. She self-published License to Lie in 2014. Now, I don't remember this case happening, which is why it's important that we read and it's important that we study history. When I say that we study history, I'm not talking about history in the sense that you learned in grammar school, middle school, and high school, or even college. I'm talking about recent history. When this was happening, I was too young to be paying attention. That's why it's important for us to look back and know what was happening in the recent past, the recent history. So we're gonna flip the script and we're gonna continue. Six weeks earlier in the great state of Alaska, a group of friends, several with their teenage children, boarded a red and white stripped 
single engine otter plane for days of Alaska's finest fishing. It was August 9th, 2010. The sky was gray with light rain in the morning, but the weather improved in the afternoon. It was August 9th, 2010. The sky was gray with light rain in the morning, but the weather improved in the afternoon. At takeoff, visibility was good with some clouds and patches of blue sky. The plane took off about 3 p.m. for a nearby fishing camp. Former NASA chief Sean O'Keefe and his son Kevin were on board. Young Kevin had the honor of sitting in the co-pilot seat where he went to sleep. The prominent parents and teenagers in the cabin were busy talking about the day and their plans to bring more business to Alaska. A couple more dozed off as the plane flew beneath the clouds and above the very terrain. Suddenly, the plane banked to the left. Around 6 p.m., the folks at the lodge called the camp to find out when the group would be planning to return for dinner. The plane had never arrived. Alaska is the most dangerous state for aircraft. They alerted all rescue services immediately. Around 7.30 p.m., one of the volunteer searchers in a Cessna plane spotted the aircraft about 15 minutes from the lodge. The plane had crashed into a 30-degree slope of heavily forested mountainside. A nearby helicopter crew arrived and reported that the aircraft appeared mostly intact. There was no fire, but the left wing was torn off, leaving a gaping hole in the side of the fuselage that was visible from the air. The helicopter crew saw one survivor waving. The chopper landed about 1,000 feet above the accident site. The helicopter managed to drop off a doctor and two emergency medical technicians with medical supplies and equipment. When the rescuers reached the crash site, they found five people had died, including the pilot, Sean and Kevin O'Keefe, and two others were still alive. The plane was equipped with Terrain Awareness Warning System, or TWAS, that would have visually and audibly notified the pilot to pull up if he was too close to the terrain. The TWAS had been disabled. There was no co-pilot voice recorder or flight data recorder. Three autopsies of the pilot provided no discernible reason for the crash. Breaking news on every channel hit Alaska and then the entire country like an 8.9 earthquake. Former Senator Ted Stevens, beloved champion of Alaska, had been killed near Dillingham, Alaska in the crash of a private plane while he was on a fishing trip with longtime friends. Ted Stevens, a decorated World War II hero, a former U.S. attorney and living legend in Alaska, had lost his seat of more than 40 years in the U.S. Senate after being found guilty by a jury a year earlier for failing to report alleged gifts on Senate forms. It turned out that Senator Stevens was innocent, and the prosecutors from the Public Integrity Section of the Department of Justice had broken ethical rules, disregarded court orders, and violated constitutional law while they hid evidence favorable to his defense, called Brady material. The defense had caught a few of these shenanigans, enough that U.S. District Judge Emmett Sullivan had become irate. The judge's refusal to ignore or excuse the prosecutor's misconduct dealt a whopping black eye to the Department of Justice and the media. 
When it became obvious that Judge Sullivan was going to dismiss the indictment against Stevens, Attorney General Eric Holder swooped in, proclaimed he would clean up the department, and moved to dismiss the indictment against Stevens. Holder's pledge, however, was too little and too late for Judge Sullivan. Holder's proclamations notwithstanding, Judge Sullivan could no longer trust the Department of Justice. The elite prosecutors had lied to him time and time again, often with Deputy Assistant Attorney General Rita Glavin, Acting Attorney General Matthew Frederick's ears and eyes observing in the courtroom. Judge Sullivan took the extraordinary step of appointing a special prosecutor, D.C. Attorney Henry Schuchel III, to investigate the prosecutors for possible charges including attempt. This was unprecedented. Former Senator Stevens had publicly pledged to advocate tirelessly for legislation that would require the government to produce Brady information to a defendant in every case and to impose clear penalties for any failure to do so. Remarkably, the Department of Justice opposed Stevens' proposal. So this is a question I want to ask. Why is it that the Department of Justice would be against providing Brady material to defendants in every case? Meaning that if there is evidence that the prosecutors have that would point to your innocence, they don't want to give that. Now, you would think in a fair and just society that that would be given, that the prosecutors would say, yes, this actually might prove your innocence. So we will hand this over to you. Now, it is the government's job to prove beyond a reasonable doubt your guilt. It is not your responsibility to prove your innocence. It is the government's burden to prove beyond a reasonable doubt, meaning that if there is any type of reasonable doubt, then you should be found not guilty by a jury. Or if the prosecutors know that you're innocent, they should drop the case. But oftentimes, especially in the federal government, this does not happen and they do everything they can to prosecute you. Even though the cards are stacked in your favor on paper, according to the Constitution, the federal government has unlimited resources that you do not. They can bankrupt you as you try to defend yourself in the court. You will rack up attorney fees. They will push the dates back to where you will lose your house. You could, if you have a family... And you have to worry about them possibly losing your house. What are you going to do? You may take a plea bargain for a lesser sentence if you plead guilty. That is ultimately what the prosecution is trying to get. And if you don't play along, then they will continue to prosecute you and they will take you to trial and give you the harshest penalty. We will cover farther along in this book what is the motivation for this. And as we continue to read, we will see. So we're going to flip the script and we're going to continue. Stevens was innocent and insisted on fighting the charges, his attorneys said. He remained profoundly affected by the government's misconduct and its implications for others. 
His fervent hope was that meaningful change would be brought to the criminal justice system so that others would not be mistreated as he was by the very officials whose duty it is to represent the United States justly and fairly. The senator's death and the tsunami of renewed publicity of prosecutorial and government misconduct was drowning Nick Marsh. Nick Marsh was the guy from our opening who hung himself, right? He could hardly breathe. It was all he could do to get up in the morning and go to the back office to which he had been relegated at the Department of Justice. Nick felt heavier and heavier. He was on the verge of losing his career and possibly his liberty. And he felt as if he had lost his soul. He didn't recognize himself anymore. He needed peace, but he knew it would only get worse for him. At 35, the handsome, angular-jawed, dark-haired young prosecutor had been one of the youngest attorneys in the prestigious public integrity section of the Department of Justice, nicknamed Pin. His office was in Main Justice, the impressive building that occupies a block of expensive real estate between Pennsylvania and Constitution Avenues. In the four years Marsh had been a federal prosecutor in Penn, he had led the investigation into public corruption in Alaska. He and his team of fellow Penn prosecutor Edward Sullivan, Alaska Assistant Attorney Joseph W. Botany, and James A. Goke, along with FBI agents, had begun the Polar Pen investigation in Alaska in 2004. They had tried and convicted seven high-profile legislators and businessmen, using much of the same evidence that they later used to indict and convict Senator Ted Stevens. Pin attorneys were the best of the best. They were supposed to adhere to the highest standards. After all, they investigated public officials for public corruption, and they had to be above reproach. At the same time, there was so much pressure to win, especially in the high-profile political prosecutions. These were the cases that would make or break a prosecutor's career. A win in these cases was a first-class ticket to a seven-figure income in the most prestigious national or international law firms or promotions up the ladder in the Department of Justice, the White House, or even the leadership at the FBI. Now listen, I am all for corrupt politicians to be prosecuted and tried. Absolutely. However, what worries me is that when innocent people are tried and prosecuted, if they could do that to a senator who was in the Senate for 40 years, imagine what they could do to you or I. We don't have nearly the resources that Senator Stevens had to defend his case. And he was still convicted. And it later came out that he was innocent. But if you or I were caught up in this situation and the federal government was coming after us, we were targeted of them, we would stand no chance. This is, we need to be aware of this. This is going on. And if you think that this is just one case or that this doesn't happen anymore, you are extremely naive. You need to wake up. Now, I'm not saying that everybody in the DOJ is like this, right? There are certain individuals. This is what happens. It's human nature, right? When you give human beings power, it opens them up to corruption, and that's just the fact. And it's always going to be like that. There's nothing that is going to change that. We have to be aware, though. That's all I'm doing is trying to bring awareness. It's human nature. There's always going to be corruption. Just hope that you don't end up on that end. All right, let's flip the script. 
The pressure had been bad enough two and one half years ago before Matthew Frederick had skyrocketed from his position as an Enron task force prosecutor to acting assistant attorney general of the criminal division of the Department of Justice. Within days of arrival of Frederick and his deputy, Rita Glavin, they intruded heavily into the Stevens case. They began weekly, sometimes daily meetings with PIN management. Second Chief Bill Welsh, the Deputy Chief Brenda Morris, Frederick and Glavin demanded a chart of evidence and defenses, and they summoned all the prosecutors, including the two assistant U.S. attorneys from Alaska, for the presentation to them. For unknown reasons, they rushed to indict Senator Stevens, the longest-serving Republican in the Senate. Frederick and Glavin took control of the Stevens prosecution and micromanaged it to, to absurd detail. On the eve of the indictment, they demoted Marsh from first chair to third chair for Stevens' trial. After Frederick and Glavin took over, the prosecution had nothing but problems. No one outside the small circle within the department would know until long after it all started to unveil. Nick knew the truth. When it all fell apart, he and his fellow trial team members became the targets of both internal department investigation and independent Schuylkill investigation ordered by Judge Sullivan. Nick just knew that the life he loved as a federal prosecutor was over. He feared that everything that went wrong in the Stevens prosecution was going to be hung around his neck. Frederick and Glavin were way too politically connected and savvy to take the fall. The judge did not name them in his order authorizing Schuylkill's investigation. There was no apparent reason to do so. They were not trial attorneys. Nick came to realize that being a target of criminal investigation felt very different from running one. The Schuylkill and internal investigation seemed to be taken over and had already been more than a year, six weeks after Senator Stevens' plane crash and death. Nick was numb. The gruesome suicide of Senator Stevens' prosecutors, who was himself under investigation for corruption, dishonesty, and misconduct, sent another shock wave of distress through the department. Less than two months after the senator's plane crash, yet again, the department and the wrongful prosecution of Stevens were in the national news. Virtually everyone who saw the breaking news and knew anything about the Stevens prosecution and the investigation of the prosecutors viewed it as a message. Nicholas Marsh was guilty of hiding evidence that would have exonerated Senator Stevens, or he knew more than he had said. Patton Boggs, attorney Robert Luskin, and Marsh's lawyer Luskin spoke to reporters shortly after the news broke, calling Nick's suicide a terrible tragedy. He spoke of how Nick loved being a prosecutor, but was incredibly fearful that the investigation would end his career with the Department of Justice. Luskin claimed they were on the verge of successful resolution. He said he expected Schuylkill to exonerate Marsh. Luskin, Luskin's optimistic proclamation was far from the reality. Nicholas Marsh had felt that insiders knew. Maybe Nick's friends and family believed it. Maybe they had to believe it. Maybe it was the only way they could protect their own feelings for the Nick they believed him to be, the Nick they thought they knew, the Nick they had always loved. Publicly, Nick's friends and Luskin blamed the pressure and the length of the investigation for his suicide. Luskin added, the whole process imposed an unbelievable burden on Nick. 
a burden that in the end he couldn't bear. The Wall Street Journal reported that Joshua Berman, a former prosecutor and friend, said that Nick was anxious that the probe had dragged on, but that friends never realized the depth of his worry. The wrongful prosecution had put on Senator Stevens and his family. Subsequently, longer than 18 months and the continuing efforts it had on the remainder of his life and on his family. Lawyers in the fence bar saw Marsha's suicide as an admission of his own guilt. Lawyers know all too well that the prosecutors are almost never punished in any way, regardless of how erroneous the conduct it is. It is extremely difficult for a wronged defendant to sue a prosecutor. They have immunity from lawsuits because they work on behalf of the sovereign. They can hide evidence of a defendant's innocence with impunity. They have little concern that it will ever be discovered, and even if it is, they know they will suffer no consequences. This is extremely disturbing. Let's flip the script. Let's continue. Judges routinely believe prosecutors when they say, we've produced Brady evidence. Judges rarely push back at the assertions, no matter how much the defense complains or what suspicions are raised. Only on the rarest of occasions have prosecutors ever been suspended by their bar association for hiding evidence favorable to the defense. And here Marsh and even his fellow prosecutors had the luxury of being represented at the taxpayer's expense by the best criminal defense lawyers in the country. Ironically, Shukla's investigation was moving quickly by the federal standards. Many people, especially those prosecuted by Acting Attorney General Frederick and his colleagues when they were on the Enron task force, lived with the torment of investigations, criminal charges, repeated prosecutions, and imprisonment for years, even a decade. No one in the department, including March, gave any thought to the toll their tactics and decisions took on others, until perhaps Judge Sullivan turned the tables. Being investigated was very different from being an investigator. The report seemed canned, and the story was faded quickly. Nicholas Marsh, a brilliant, young, capable man, paid the ultimate price for something that should never have happened. He was shattered by his own choices and those imposed upon him. Either way, he, Senator Stevens, and their families were needlessly sacrificed on opposite sides of the altar of injustice because of the deplorable failure of a system that is supposed to protect all of us. Before and after the senator's death and Marsh's suicide, Special Prosecutor Sugal and his partner William Shields were working diligently to pull back the cobalt blue curtain bearing the impressive seal of the Department of Justice. Ultimately, Shukal would reveal shocking facts with ramifications of their own. As thorough as Shukal was, he was only barely scraping the surface. The illegal and unethical tactics that unscattered Senator Stevens changed the balance of power in the Senate and had now claimed two lives. Narcissistic and terrifying tacticians were ascending to great power on the foundation of legacy of files, corruption, and injustice that would take years to uncover. They had long practice to win at any cost, skillfully buried the deep truth. We're going to stop there. This is a big book, as you can see. The book is 438 pages. 
So I suggest getting a copy and checking it out yourself. But these are things that we need to be aware of. These are the things that we need to think about. You know, if you find yourself on the wrong side, it's very easy. You can find yourself there. Let's hope not. Don't be naive. Don't think that because things are supposed to be a certain way, that human nature won't take over. Because human nature is a huge factor in that. Even though that the system is supposed to work a certain way and is designed that way and is written that way, that doesn't mean that individuals will follow those rules. The system is only as good as the individuals who are working in it. Or those who are putting those policies and those practices into practice. If they're not, then the system doesn't work. So this is the end of transmission number two, Flip the Script podcast. Hope you enjoyed it. And hope to see you again next time. Thank you. And stay hard. Flip the script. Keep your warrior mindset. Don't fall. Don't give up. Continue the fight. Flip the script podcast out.